So our reading this, mor- uh, this morning we're going to think about is uh, from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 down to 80. 57 down to 80. And focus turns to, uh, to John the Baptist and his, uh, his family. Let's hear God's word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up on their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the, the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us, In the house of his servant David, he has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word once again, this uh, marvelous section of scripture. And uh, we thank you for your uh, patience with us as we read it and study together. We pray you come amongst us and help us to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been looking at the, uh, the events leading up to the birth of Jesus in the first chapter of Luke so far. We'll drift into the second chapter uh, next week. But, um, uh, and part of the story has been uh, involving not simply the family of Jesus, but the, the fam- another family, uh, the family of Zechariah, the family to, uh, to whom John the Baptist will be born. And that's a significant story, um, because Zechariah and Elizabeth 
uh, have suffered for many years uh, with childlessness. They've not been able to produce any children. And uh, they've gone past the normal age of, of bearing children, as we discovered earlier in chapter 1. And yet we have seen that God sent an angel to Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah was uh, you know, his, the, a rare occasion when he gets to minister in the temple and to go into the, the holy place and to prostrate himself before the Lord uh, as the incense is burning and he's offering up prayers on behalf of the people of Israel. And at that moment, uh, uh, Gabriel, the angel, appears. As though in answer to his prayers and and says, the Lord has heard your prayers. And the prayers that he has prayed for Israel are coming to fruition and include him in his life. Because he is going to bear a son. His wife is going to bear a son, rather. And, and of course, that's what happened. uh, Elizabeth conceives and uh, uh, begins to... uh, the child begins to form in her womb. And, uh, and then we find, so we find ourselves at this passage. And it's got, as you can probably tell from the way it's laid out in the ESV, uh, there are two sections to this. Uh, verses 57 to 66 tell us about the birth and how the news was, the birth of John was, re- was received by friend, uh, relatives and neighbors. And then in verses 67 through to 80, we have this uh, prophecy of Zechariah, uh, the boy's father. And uh, we'll spend most of our time on the prophecy, but I do want to spend a little bit of time, first of all, on thinking about the stirred up expectations that happen with the birth of John. So the first section is the stirred up expectations. Uh, the birth itself is quite uneventful, everything goes naturally. And in verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. There you are. It's done. Uh, There's nothing spectacular about the birth. It's just ordinary. Uh, Nothing uh, to to write home about, in a sense. And uh, he simply, Luke simply notes that it's happened. Um, But there's a number of interesting uh, features of that story that follow afterwards, um, which uh, Luke wants to draw attention to. Uh, Firstly, neighbors and friends gather around, um, and they are full of joy. They want to rejoice with Elizabeth because they've known about her her plight, as it were. She's not been able to have children, and you know, out of the blue, she conceives and uh, has this, and this child is born. So um, they're all all rejoicing with her. It's amazing, wonderful thing. The second thing that uh, we notice here is that after uh, on the eighth day. Uh, Luke records that John was circumcised. Again, there's actually nothing particularly special about that. That would be normal uh, in that culture after eight days. In fact, it's normal since the time of Abraham. Uh, Genesis 17.12, after eight days, every male child should be circumcised. Every male person in the household should be circumcised. Every male child should be circumcised after eight days, and every male male, uh, member of the household. And um, so there's nothing particularly uh, unusual about that. But the point is that, that Luke points it out to us. Why does he point it out? Why? What's, what's the significance of this eighth day circumcision? Well, I think it's... Uh, maybe you want to consider this. I think it's just a little signal 
from Luke about something amazing that's happening. The fact that he points it out is a signal that something is amazing uh, is happening. Why? Why? What's the significance of it? Well, I think it's got to do with creation. Seven days for creation. Glorious creation. You see it in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then it's not just that Luke is pointing out it's the first day of the next week. But he's saying it's the eighth day. And the eighth day comes up several times in the Old Testament. I I challenge you to to Google it. (laughs) Go into your Bible website, you know, Bible Gateway or something. And Google eighth day and find all the places where uh, the Bible mentions the eighth day. And you, you find that the eighth day is a really significant day. And the reason it's an an important day is because it points forward not to creation, but to new creation. And so Luke is giving us a little signal here. Something epochal is happening. A, A new epoch is beginning to come into play here. Something amazing is starting to happen. In the, in the times, times to come. And so circumcision, and you, you'll, no, no doubt you'll know, if you've been around and reading your Bible for a while, you'll know that circumcision in the Old Testament uh, points forwards to the death of Christ. So Christ's death on the cross is a kind of circumcision. And that circumcision in the Old Testament um, signals the, the kind of, the way in which people are going to be saved through the shedding of blood, through an ordeal of circumcision. But the day on which circumcision applies also signals something, that that death is the opening up of the new creation. The eighth day. So that's quite a significant thing, I think. See what you think. You can go away and think about that. John, Luke was seeing something new here. The coming of John was something new. Here's a third thing about this this little little account. That Zechariah is able to speak after the circumcision. And you remember that uh, Zechariah was struck dumb by Gabriel because he didn't believe Gabriel uh, earlier on in chapter 1. He didn't believe he was going to have a son. He doubted. And so as a sign to Zechariah, he was going to be struck dumb. So every day that uh, John was gestating in his wife's womb, he would remember that he didn't believe and uh, a reminder that he needs to believe the word of God. But after he is born, after he is circumcised, Zachariah suddenly is able to speak again. And, uh, and it's interesting, while he's still dumb... Uh, you've noticed that all the parents have, a, all the friends and neighbours have a, an opinion about what the baby should be called. They all think he should be called Zachariah after his father, which is, I guess would be normal. Everybody's got an opinion about baby names. We've just become grandparents, uh, and uh, everybody's got an opinion about Elijah's name. <laughs> it's uh, quite interesting, isn't it? Um, but it's it's not anybody else's business, is it? And um, but. It's, Zachariah insists that his name should be called John because that's the name that Gabriel has given him. 
to, to, to name him. Now the fourth thing uh, here is that and probably the most important thing about this story this little section is the effect that those things have on those friends and relatives put all these things together and you begin to notice that an amazing effect takes place within these friends and neighbours first of all they wondered in verse 63 about the name change what's going on then in verse 65 fear comes upon all their neighbours and then news begins to spread about what's just happened uh, and all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. So news begins to spread like wildfire about Zachariah and Elizabeth and this little baby John. Uh, so th- this, things begin to spread. And, and, they start, and, and the, 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 the question that's on their minds as they're talking about these events is, what then will this child be? So they're not just wowed about a few, you know, the, the amazing conception and everything. They're thinking, all of this is significant about this baby. It's, it's saying something about what this baby's going to be. I wonder what this, is, this baby's going to be. And so the news spreads. You see this sense of anticipation. The sense of expectation that has arisen. Now, friends... One of the things that we have lost in the church today is a sense of expectation that God will do great things. The reason we go spend time going over these accounts in these gospels and and look at Jesus' birth at this time of year is not so that we can get a nice, warm, sentimental, fuzzy feeling at this time of year, the so-called Christmas spirit. The reason we do this is just because we seek to rekindle a sense of expectation that God is doing great things and always has been doing great things, that he is doing great things in the world today. And so I ask you this morning, do you believe that God is doing great things in the advancement of his kingdom? In the bringing in of the new creation? As men and women, boys and girls, become new creatures in Jesus Christ? Do you have that sense of expectation? Or is just coming to church just a kind of weekly humdrum thing we do if we feel like it? Friends, we need to grow in our sense of expectation. Oh, how we need to pray to God that he would give us that sense of expectation that he would do great things amongst us. That he would give us that sense of wonder, of godly fear. And have that question in our minds, what's he going to do next? Have you ever asked that question, what's God going to do next? Just anticipating what's he going to do here in Solihull, in our church, or in the churches and gospel preaching churches in the rest of Solihull? What is God going to do? 
cry out to God for it. What are you going to do, Lord? You've said all these things. You've promised all these things. What are you going to do, God? Our great God. Well, that brings us to the, the next part of the passage. Because it moves from telling a story to a prophetic, if you like, a, a hymn of praise from uh, Zechariah. Sometimes called um, the hymn of Zechariah or Benedictus as it's called in Latin. Um, and uh, Zechariah is filled with the Spirit. So remember we said before that being filled with the Spirit really has everything to do with being equipped to then speak prophetically. Uh, into the situation. And Zechariah does just that. He becomes this mouthpiece of God to us. To speak God's words into our, into our lives. Speak God's mind into the situation. And here in this song, as it were, we have this explanation of what God is up to. Um, and it comes in two parts, I think. Um, verses 68 to 75. Um, talk about the salvation of the Lord, and then verses 76 to 79 uh, deal with this particular son, John, uh, John who's born to Zechariah. So the first part of this, 68 to 75, Zechariah sings about or talks about how salvation has come, how salvation has come. And I want you to notice uh, two main things about this section. Uh, First, this salvation is about a person. And secondly, it's about a promise. And straight away, I want you to see again how how deeply personal uh, this is. When we talk about salvation in the Christian church, in Christianity... We are not talking about some cold clinical procedure to sort us out or some faceless bureaucracy that God somehow enacts to to kind of uh, process us. Sometimes we think about Christianity like that. You follow the procedure and you'll get saved. I'll pray the prayer and I'll get saved. It's not a procedure. That God offers us. He is talking about someone. A person. Someone you can know. That you can relate to. Who is working out the salvation that you can enjoy. And he does so because he has made a promise that he intends to keep. And those things are often missing. In our thinking today. Christianity is about the person of Jesus Christ. Somebody you can know. And what we offer to people is not a process. Not a religion, although it is a religious activity. But we are offering to people a person that can be known. Jesus Christ. And the, the identity of that person becomes... Clear as John, as Zachariah goes through his um, uh, his song, he begins to speak of the Lord God of Israel, verse sixty-eight. And uh, this Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed His people. So, again, notice how personal that is. 
he is visiting with his people. He's not just dropping by. Uh, he is visiting with them. And, uh, you know, I think in it, probably in, in the UK, visiting has quite a different meaning from our friends in the United States. I remember speaking to an American missionary uh, on the back of a bus going to Dundee once. And um, he, was, he was a missionary to Romania. And uh, we had a long conversation in the back of the bus. And uh, as we approached our destination, uh, he said, nice to visit with you. I thought, that's weird. <laughs> but what he meant was, I have spent time with you, and we have shared our hearts together. We have talked about the issues of our lives together, and our work before the Lord, and we have shared with one another. And so visited with you. And I think this is what uh, is meant in the first century. To visit with somebody is to join with people. To have that closeness and fellowship with people. And so God visits his people. How personal it is. But then he speaks of the, the horn of salvation. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And what is that horn of salvation? Well, it's a figure of strength. A horn is of strength. You, you watch those David Attenborough programs and you see these kind of like wildebeest or whatever. <laughs> you know, and at certain times of the year, they start, the males start fighting each other with their horns. And, you know, they, I don't know if wildebeest have antlers. You know. <laughs> Deer have antlers. You know, all, the, all these animals that start fighting for the, for the females. And they use their horns. And it's the ones with the biggest, strongest horns that uh, seem to dominate and do the most damage. So when God says he is the horn of our salvation, he's saying he's going to do some damage to the enemies to bring about our salvation. He's powerful and can do it all. And this horn arises from the household of David. In other words... A person of strength has arisen from amongst David's descendants. Now from Luke's gospel so far, where is the mention of the house of David? It is, of course, the announcement of the birth of our Lord Jesus. Uh, Look back to verse 32. This baby Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. In other words, this baby Jesus is yet to be born. But he is the warrior king. Strong enough to win salvation for his people. And to bring redemption. In other words, to to set them free. How we need to be set free. Free from our sin. And our failure. And our bondage. And saved from our enemies. Verse 71. Now Zechariah is not specific about how that's going to happen yet. But notice that in verses 68 and 69. It's all in the past tense. It's happened. In other words, although Jesus is not born yet, it's a done deal it's happening Zechariah is speaking prophetically and often the prophets speak in the past tense about future events but it's so certain he can talk as though it's already happened 
So salvation is about this person. This horn of David. That's going to arise. But then also salvation is about a promise. Verse 70. The Lord has spoken of the Savior in the prophets. That mercy was promised to their fathers. Verse 72. This promise takes the form of a holy covenant. uh, In verse uh, end of verse 72. All those covenants of the Old Testament are coming to fulfillment now in Jesus Christ. And that oath has been sworn by God. God is sworn by his own name. There's no higher name by which you can swear. There's no more certain statement that God can make that he's going to do it than but to swear by himself. In other words, God is entering into a binding commitment upon pain of death, as we see in other places in Scripture. It's a binding commitment he cannot break. And he is fulfilling it now in this, uh, this baby that's coming. And look how old these, this promise is. Zechariah reminds us it goes back to Abraham, verse 73. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us a promise to bring forth a horn of salvation. If you're an Israelite, that's about as old as you can get. <laughs> Back to Abraham. And Abraham learned the, the truth of um, there needing to be a sin offering for sins, for his sins. You remember that terrible story in, in Genesis chapter 22 where he takes his only son, his only beloved son, Isaac. He takes him up the mountain and he, he knows that God has commanded him to sacrifice him. But he's willing to do it. Hebrews tells us he believed that God could raise him from the dead. But it's through this signal that a sacrifice is necessary for sins. In the end God comes and stays his hand. Gives a, a, a ram instead. But the point is made. That this promise is going to lead to someone who's going to die in place of sinners. So Zechariah speaks of this salvation that has come through his, this baby Jesus. And as a result of this personal commitment to God to enter into a covenant with his people. And I wonder if you've grasped the significance of this. That this is a God who has been active in human history for millennia. And he is now acting in Jesus Christ to fulfill all of his promises and to bring about the salvation uh, that a fallen and broken world needs. I wonder if you've grasped that this morning. Well, the final section, verses 76 onwards, uh, Zechariah leads us into what the problem is that is going to be solved through the coming of this uh, saviour. And he begins to speak about the, the role of his own son, John. And you see verse 76. And you child, he's speaking about his new child now. You child will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. In the forgiveness of their sins. 
the job of John was to go before the Savior. He used to go ahead announcing salvation is to come. That the king has arrived. He's a herald of the great things that are about to happen. That the Savior has arrived. And he's to announce it in a particular way. He is to announce it in such a way that it identifies the problem that is to be solved. And so verse 77 says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So he's, he's dealing with the question of our sins. This is a great issue that needs to be addressed with human beings. That our sins have caused a separation between us and God. There's, a, there's an unbridgeable gap. You may remember that bridge illustration. I learned it as a student. I share the gospel with it. You see on, the, on one side God is here. And on the other side is human beings. And in the gap is this great chasm caused by our sins. And you write sin down the middle. And sin is a big separator between God, between God and man. And we need a saviour that can come and bridge the gap. And so you write Christ and it goes, takes the iron of sin and Christ takes the sin, you see. And you get this cross in the middle. And Christ is the one who, who bridges the gap of our, caused by our sins. The gospel is so simple. So gloriously simple. But the big problem, of course, is sins. And sin... Sin is a condition. Sin as a condition kind of keeps people in slavery. They find themselves compelled to sin. It's a kind of addiction. Sin is a kind of addiction. And you know, addicts always want more of what they're addicted to. And the trouble with addicts is everybody else can see that addicts are being destroyed by what they're addicted to. It's a great tragedy. In the same way, sin is a kind of addictive drug that people long for. They want more. And it leads to eternal destruction. We need to be forgiven of all our sins. How we need to have the penalties of sin removed. How we need to be freed from the power that sin holds on us. And keeps us in slavery to it. And that's what this Savior has come to do. So that we can be forgiven and freed from all our sins. And notice how Zechariah puts it. To have Jesus come into your life as a Savior is like the rising... Uh, the sun rising on a glorious new morning after a cold night. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Isn't that a beautiful picture of salvation? So like everybody's cold and dark and lost and struggling to find their way around the place in life. And then the grace of God comes. And it's like the sun rising in the morning. And everything's beautiful and warm and glorious. All of the world is sitting in darkness. It's miserable. You ever notice how 
on the TV news, it's always the bad news we get. And there's a reason why they do that. They, they, they say that people are more interested in the bad news than the good news. It keeps the viewing ratings up. But it's interesting, the whole world likes bad news. It's more interested in bad news. It tells you how people are worried about their bad news, all the th- bad things that are happening to their lives. They never discovered the sun rising in the morning of the, the grace of God in their lives and the good news that they can share with people and tell people about. There's a saviour who's come for me. There's a saviour who's come and died for me. He's a saviour who's come and now he offers me forgiveness of sins. If only, if only people would come to him, they could have forgiveness of sins and know it in their souls and have that peace of God. All things seem new. Friends, I urge you today, because this, this message is still for today, receive this salvation from Jesus Christ. There are sins that you've committed, yes. And they may be big sins or they may be little sins, but there are plenty of sins, don't worry about it. Whatever sins you can think of, there are plenty more. But they can all be forgiven, even the worst of sins. You know, it shocks some people to say, but you know, Adolf Hitler, Hitler could have been forgiven if he had confessed his sins to the Lord Jesus Christ in those last moments of his life. Any sin can be forgiven by the Lord Jesus. All that's required is that you receive the Savior. That you receive him as your warrior king who has done what is necessary to give you the results of his saving work. And through him you can know this personal God who when he makes a promise, no matter how long ago, he always keeps it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the marvellous gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the horn of salvation that is Jesus himself. We pray you'd help us to have that sense of expectation that you still do great things amongst us. And you still have plenty to do. And you promise to do it. And we pray you'd help us to trust him in Jesus' name. Amen.